a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. And I just think that that's such a powerful statement about the importance of being resilient, of being adaptable, being willing to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. When this is a recurring theme with legislative stuff, you've got to be able to play the long game and not give up when things don't go exactly your way, but figure out another way to get to where you're going, which may take you longer, but you're still on the right path toward your original goal. Jane Johnson, my favorite time of the week to have you here to talk about the third week of the legislative process. Uh, we started out, uh, this is the week of March 15th through the 19th. We've had, of all things, this week, the time change. How are you doing with that, Jane? You know, I am not a fan of that. <laughs> We're just talking about it. I know. But Jane, I'm, you know, maybe we need to back uh, some legislation that suggests that we need to do the time changes on Mondays instead of over the weekend and we take the time of Monday at four o'clock, make it five o'clock, everyone goes home, peace out, we're good. I think that would be a winning bipartisan like piece of legislation right there. Well, Tony, it's interesting you say that because Florida did pass a law uh, a couple of years ago to keep Florida in daylight saving times year round, but it's a federal law. And so 15 states have actually passed that law, but we were waiting for Congress to pass their version of it so that Florida can adopt daylight savings year round. So it's, um, we won't lose the difference in time zones, you know, like our friends in the Western Panhandle are still going to be in central time. Yep. But, but that I think has to do with how the sun rises and, and it hits further west later. So then they actually adjust the time, but legislation was passed and that's a great sill house rocks. Um, if you have a federal law that impacts states, a state law can't be more stringent than the federal, well, they can be more stringent, but it can't obviate a federal law. So even though we passed the law, we can't observe it here in Florida because the feds have not approved it. It's the same thing with marijuana. You know, people have, states have approved marijuana, but it's still considered a controlled substance by the federal government. So it creates this dynamic, but yes, down with time change. <laughs> Still house rocks. That's right. And the time change. So yeah, I just feel like I'm, I'm a, I'm my, my rhythms are just starting to equilibrate right now. But uh, yeah, quite a week. We have a lot to catch us up on. So let's dive right into it. We've had a lot of action so far, third week into the legislative session. So Jane, break it down. Well, um, it was an exciting week. So it started off on Monday. Um, FASL has an appropriation bill where 15 SILs will each get uh, $60,000 a piece for a total of $900,000 to add staff to increase the transition services they're currently providing. So that was an appropriations bill that filed in the House. By law, it has to, by rule, it has to pass a House Appropriations Committee in order to be able to be considered for the full budget. And it passed um, as part of a consent agenda on Monday, which means Great. it was one of about 23 different items all in the same bill. It was put up on an agenda and the committee voted unanimously for all the projects. So we're thrilled about that. So we have cleared the hurdle that needed to be cleared to go to the next step. Now we have to work with the House and Senate appropriators. But it's early to do that because what has to happen now is there's appropriations committees that oversee all the subcommittees and the subcommittees are divided by subject matter area like health and human services, education, transportation, economic development, criminal justice, and that sort of thing. So 
the big appropriations chairs have to give what they call allocations to each of the subcommittees. And that's where they look at the total budget that they're, they're gonna have available to them. And they tell each appropriation subcommittee, this is how much money you have to spend. And so then the chairs of those appropriation subcommittees have to figure out how to fund the various agencies and programs that are sort of considered must fund items. And then whatever the difference is, is what they can use to add additional things. Our appropriations request would be considered an additional item because we're not part of the core budget. We're not considered a must fund. So we're hoping that with whatever excess funding there is available to our appropriations subcommittee, which would be education and employment, that we would be considered in that budget. But the allocations haven't been made yet. Usually they wait for the revenue estimating conference to make their final projection about how much revenue they think the state will have before they make those allocations. Rumor is that we'll probably have the allocations next week. So then once we know what those are, then we'll start talking to the chairs of the appropriation subcommittees about our issue and trying to get them heard, get it heard in their committee and hopefully get it included in their, their budget recommendations that they will pass on to the big appropriations committees. Are, are people that are in the subcommittees exclusively different than the people in the larger committee itself? Are they always separate yeah, or do yeah. some cross-pollinate? Yeah, there is some cross-pollination and that's by design because you want to make sure that you have representation from, there's six different silos of, of sort of budget concentrations. You want to make sure you have representation from all of those silos up to the big appropriations subcommittee, because, uh, big, big appropriations full committee, because in the, in the subcommittees, that's where you'll hear the debate and you'll understand the issues mm -hmm. at, you know, at a much more detailed level so that they can be appropriately advocated for at the big appropriations committee level. Well, let's definitely get the people who are on these subcommittees, the Department of Education subcommittee, uh, put them in their show notes, allow people that are listeners to, to lend their voice to you know, these issues that are here. I think that's a you know thing that we need to be constantly putting out there is that it's always important to get a hold of our the local legislatures that live in our you know, areas, but also particularly when they sit on these subcommittees and larger committees that have directly to do with the issues that you're interested in. So very powerful, no matter where you live, those are very important people that sit on the subcommittees and larger committees, Jane. So thank you so much, Sill House Rocks. So talk so to us. That was just Monday. That was just Monday. Oh, gee whiz. We haven't even gotten to St. Patrick's Day. Oof, we're lucky we made it through the week. Go ahead. So on Tuesday, our, our big policy bill, and that's Senate Bill 794 that Senator uh, Aaron Bean sponsored for us, that was heard in the committee. Um, Remind everybody what that bill is all about. This is a bill that increases the funding for the uh, JP Pass program, which is really critical. It's a, a program that provides financial support to people with significant uh -huh. disabilities who need help getting to work every day. Yeah, uh, keeping them employed. Yeah. And the money allows them to employ other people to provide that personal care. So that's it's right. an employment plus plus program. So um, it increases the funding for that program, which is currently operating at a deficit. And it also updates the chapter 413 related to the Florida Independent Living Council so that it, it, it appropriately matches federal law. And also there's been some changes in, at the state level too with the Division of Blind Services, which is no longer under the Florida Independent Living Council. It has its own council and it has its own entity within vocational rehabilitation. So that's the bill um, Senator Bean sponsored for us and, and he presented it in committee to the Children and Families Committee. It passed unanimously. Great. So 
We are thrilled. He was just back from having been out for COVID. So we're thankful that he's doing well. He's yes, healthy. That's great. Yes. So that's good. Our house bill had been sitting quietly, which is never a good sign. And we were getting nervous up until yesterday when it was put on the agenda for the um, House Higher Higher Education and Lifelong Learning Committee. And remind people what this bill is all about. It's the House Companion to the Senate bill. So it's the same thing. It does the same thing. It um, increases funding for JP Pass and updates the Filk statute. But you, you know, we have to have a Senate bill and a House bill moving along side by side together to, to gotcha. ultimately pass the final Ooh, bill. Tony needs more Sill House Rocks. So with, <laughs> as, as we're going uh, you know, through this uh, stepwise process, the, the FILC part of this, is it is that part of it broadening the uh, definition of disability in, in any way? Is that part of this? It is not. It is okay. not. It's The changes to the FILC part are pretty technical in nature. Um, it changes the number of people that have to serve on FILC because they, it was at 14 which was which I had was problematic for two reasons. One, it was really hard to find 14 people to serve on the council because they have to be appointed by the governor and the appointments process can be long time So cumbersome, yeah. But also it was an even number and that's never good on any kind of voting sure. because you can, you can have a tie. So the number has been decreased to 11 and it's an odd number. And it just clarified, like I said, it took out the division of blind services because that's been moved over into its own entity. And there's a council for the blind that serves in a similar capacity as the Florida Independent Living Council. So that happens periodically. Statutes have to be updated because change in practice makes them irrelevant or obsolete. And so we, and FASL filed this language at, as a favor to the Florida Independent Living Council because they are our sister agency. It's kind of a mutual support relationship but because they're a quasi state entity they are not allowed to lobby the legislature. So they couldn't do it themselves. And FASL, because we're a not-for-profit independent entity, we have the ability to work with the legislature. So we're kind of carrying their water for them. Yeah, and, and it just is practical sense, uh, you know, 11 person versus a 14 person and makes it more manageable. And yeah, the, the appointment process, uh, governor appointment you know, seats, if not done in a timely manner, can really inhibit the organizations or agencies or departments that are charged with the role and responsibility to do their job. And if they have that where as a barrier, the time in which it gets appointed, that can be really cumbersome. And the, the, the less people to appoint, bringing that down should hopefully uh, get councils up and going and running as, and functioning as they should be. Yeah. And appoint, you know, appointments themselves are a a political animal all into, you know, a completely unique political animal because sure. appointments can be used as gifts or paybacks to people who supported a campaign. People like to be appointed to things and feel, you know, have that sense of importance and gravitas. So a lot of times appointments are made, they're not the people that were recommended for that position, but the person who a governor or another elected official owed the most to. So you have that going on, but then you also have the vetting process for appointments any elected official that is allowed to make appointments wants to make sure that whoever they appoint is going to be ideologically and fairly aligned to where they are because you don't want to appoint someone who's going to come out as and publicly say things that contradicts what the elected official believes because it's like, well, why do you why did you appoint this person if they say the complete opposite of what you yeah, say? Yeah, get so, on board. <laughs> yeah. Figuring out people's political uh, leanings and tendencies can be difficult. So the appointment process for that reason takes a long time because you you look at the resume they submit and the application, but then you do a little background checking too, talk to people, just try to find out like, is this person a wild card? Can we trust this person? So 
it can really slow down the appointments process. So having fewer appointments to make is a good idea. Yep. Gotcha. Another behind the scenes Sill House Rock investigative report needs to be in this direction, I feel like. All right. So <laughs> go on. This is, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. But this- no, that's okay. So the, the other big thing that happened this week that we've talked about in previous issues is the COVID liability bills. There was a, a, a business uh, lab, immunity from liability, and then there was the one for healthcare providers. Well, those two bills on the Senate side, they're saying we need to merge those two into one piece of legislation because they're both kind of two arrows aiming at the same point on the target. So they're they're now merged. They, the liability bill passed on party line vote yesterday in the Senate. It's already passed in the House. The two bills are not identical, so they're going to have to come together and line up. But it looks pretty certain that these bills will pass. So, And for SILs, we think this is good news because for SILs that have taken all of the CDC recommended precautions but have continued operating through the pandemic, which they have because they were considered essential providers, this would shield them from liability if someone were to become infected or think that they contracted COVID on the premises of a SIL or through an interaction with a SIL. But an interesting piece of this is that's now coming out because vaccinations are happening all over the state is it's unclear whether or not the bill, well, it's actually, it's pretty clear the bill will not protect employers like SILs who want to require that employees have to be vaccinated in order to work on site in their SIL. Um, this is an area of uh, labor and employment law that is going to be tested, not for the first time, because some employers do require like flu vaccinations and other things, but because the COVID vaccination is not fully approved, it's got emergency approval, but it hasn't gone through the full-blown FDA approval process. There's still some concern among people about getting the vaccination, but there's equal concern among employers or you know business owners who say, I don't want you coming to work if you haven't been vaccinated because you could infect our customers or you could infect your coworkers. So, you know, can employers require employees to be vaccinated to work on on site? The answer we've seen so far is is yes, but we don't know what that means if a person requested a reasonable accommodation then an employee does not have to be vaccinated. But if they're not vaccinated, then is the employer responsible if they infect someone? So it's really, um, and that responsibility is not protected that we don't believe under this legislation that will pass um, because it's really, it's employment law more than it is business liability. So this is a new area for us. You know, if we went back to the area of when diphtheria and tuberculosis and other diseases that have been controlled through vaccination were still rampant. You could see sort of, you could sort of play out that scenario and what it would look like if we didn't have fully vaccinated populations. But this is new territory and um, we're all exploring it together. I hope that none of the SILs have to be test cases for (laughs) employer liability. But anyway, so I did some research last night looking at the, the COVID liability bills to see really understand exactly what they do protect. And um, it doesn't look like they're going to protect employers who want to require vaccinations of their employees or employers whose whose employees choose not to get be vaccinated, who then infects another employee or a customer. Although it would, it would protect them from the customer, from people from the outside, but it won't protect an employer from someone who gets vaccinated, an, an internal employee who gets infected by another internal employee. And, and, you know, I think there's also a question marks in the research on whether or not people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated are uh, more likely or less likely to sh- get people infected. 
So I think that's a big factor in all this discussion. Are people who are vaccinated less likely to spread COVID than people who did not get vaccinated? Intuitively, it, it seems so, but at least to date, in terms of the research that I know about, and I don't know all of it, it seems like that that's, that's an unknown variable. So Yeah, no, Tony, that's such a good point because there's no longitudinal study of any length that is meaningful that, that anyone can look to. So I, I think the bottom line um, and those, those important messages, we have to continue to use precautions. We have to continue wearing masks and you know trying to avoid big crowds and just practice all of the CDC recommended precautions um, until we really can feel comfortable that we understand because you know, the vaccines are just going out now. So even though we have a year's worth of COVID experience, we don't have a year's worth of vaccination experience. That's the critical standard that we need to look at in terms of the vaccine's efficacy. That's right. So, yeah, can't get around the longitudinal part of this. You know, in the experimental design, that's one of the key things that, in addition to randomness that is needed to make it a very strong and robust experimental design. And yeah, we're in the midst of this. The time is of right. the essence. Uh, and at the same time, it, it doesn't give us the data that we need to, to have strong conclusions about things. So we're going to have much more about this. This certainly is an, an important discussion to have in terms of requiring vaccines, not requiring them, let alone the broader topic of liability and um, on-premises. But this legislation seems to be one of the hottest that has moved through and so quickly, like, you know, knife and uh, melted butter in, in a way, right? Like this has really moved forward quickly. And it goes into effect as soon as the uh, governor signs it. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, it so does. This, this is fast coming. This is imminent, right? Yes, yes. I, I think, you know, they're not meeting today, so I don't think anything will happen today, but probably next week we'll see a bill, uh, a final bill signed or approved and then possibly signed by the governor. You know, when you look at the different constituencies that have come out publicly in support of it, it's, you've got Florida Healthcare Association, which represents nursing homes, the Florida Hospital Association, the Chambers of Commerce, which represent businesses, the small business, you know, the associations, which represent the, the mom and pop businesses. There's a lot of organizations and businesses and entities and then medical providers that say, hey, we want to keep operating through the pandemic. People needed us. You know, we took a risk and we need protection for the risk that we took. Of course, the trial attorneys don't like that because they think that people have the right to be represented if they've been wronged in the workplace or in public. But there's got to be a balance. I think because we've had a year of COVID experience, we can say that the law probably hits the right spot as opposed to the with the vaccination, that's a moving target. We don't know what the vaccination experience is going to look like. So I think it's premature to think the legislature could file a, a bill or, or create a law that would protect employers at this point, because we just don't know. You know, we're hearing that there's a lot of resistance to the vaccine. Yeah, the, the, the future's unknown. Yeah, it's unwritten. Yeah, for sure on this one. And so I'm interested on the point that this went on party lines. Is it a uh, safe to assume that Republican Party is more in favor of protections of or agencies, organizations, and it's the Democrats that are not in favor of this piece of legislation that is written the way it is. Not saying that they're not in favor of that, but uh, is that how it broke down? Yeah, pretty much. It's, um, you know, it's very pro-business. It's very pro, you know, healthcare provider friendly, you know, and I don't know that it's necessarily a partisan issue. It, it, this is something that the House Speaker and the Senate President and the governor lockstep on from the get-go and to vote for it is to give a win to the opposing party. So sometimes it's an ideological vote against, but sometimes it's also just 
this was their idea. They're going to take credit for it. They're going to campaign on it. We don't want to give them too much of a win. So um, yeah, I gotcha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Now, now, now we're getting into the still how sausage is made. <laughs> <laughs> so again, to that, I can see where like the ethos of each party kind of coming into conflict here and in some ways or, or con convergence actually. And, and so if the uh, stereotype is, is that the Republican party is more in favor of private business, and the Democratic Party is more in favor of like social service type agencies and stuff like that. I see where both benefit, you know, really to tell you the truth. So I think we would fall definitely more in line of the social service, human service agencies that are doing, you know, the work to serve people that are marginalized, really favoring this legislation as well as a private for profit organization as well. So I, I see some bipartisanness in it. So it kind of explains why it might just go against some party lines, you know, at least the spirit of the law. Devil's in the details, right? Yes, so, yes. But yeah. the pandemic for certain has been a wedge issue for the for the Republicans and the Democrats. There's in terms of, you know, Florida did not do the lockdowns that other states did, and the Democrats think that that was a mistake. So there's, yeah, there's just, um, the pandemic, I think, will be used as a, a re-election weapon and you know, a banner of, of victory in 2022, for sure. Yeah, that's too bad. Because like when you we look at, as you were mentioning, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance, there's a few predictors of uh, predicting whether or not somebody will be resistant or not resistant to the vaccine. And one of them is political affiliation. It's a very strong predictor uh, yes. of you know, whether or not a person has hesitancy or not towards the vaccination. And, and that just really shows you the driver of politics on behavior, attitudes, beliefs, and all these other kind of things. So we, it's very important to be careful, certainly when it's conflated with public health. You know, another thread there that can be pulled for sure uh, with everything yes. that we're going through. Yes. And that, all I would say to that, Tony, is that, you know, if, if one piece of advice to anyone is let the facts guide you. Go for the facts. Don't read opinions. I mean, you can read opinions and you can be shaped by them, but let the facts inform your decisions because that really is it's harder and harder to do because it's harder and harder to to find facts in general media that you might read but go to reputable sources that are nonpartisan that are um objective and try to find facts when you're making decisions about anything i wholeheartedly agree and for me and i'm biased is it's where the hardcore research and academics are doing on this and the, the very very high prestigious universities that have the capacity and knowledge and and those that are publishing in very reputable journals that are peer reviewed and, and all these other kind of things. So, but I know that has flaws and it's taken a hit too, because science and, you know, uh, at the beginning of this was telling us one thing and over time we're learning others and that's how science is. And in a public uh, relations or public health kind of thing, it can be a nightmare because all of a sudden at the beginning, where we kind of really don't need to wear mask or, you know, it's not transmitted this way, but then all of a sudden over time, we learn more about it. And well, it is in reversing course and that confusion can undermine people's faith and confidence in, in those certain areas. But for me, science is not the most critical people of science are the scientists and the researchers. They, they are so critical of one another and tear their stuff apart to make sure it's the most robust and, and validated. It goes through many you know, cycles of that. And so I still have faith in this area, but it is a lot to get through to understand what, even what they're saying because it can get complicated in there. And so getting that message out, I think can be very hard. And, and I, I'm so glad that you and others really point to that as where we should be getting our information. That's very transparent, very tested, 
and uh, gets intuition out of the way and feelings and, and even our own biases if done appropriately and to try to get to the objective truth. What is truth objectively, not our opinions. And that's very hard to do. A lot of bias. And I have my own. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's everywhere we go. It's not like it's, it's, it's limited to this area. Just that's why, you know, there's, you know, the, the people they call now influencers, the idea that you could even be an influencer and the concept of what is an influencer it's someone who on social media does certain things that makes everybody do what they do. You know, that, that tells powerful. me it's very powerful. People aren't making decisions based on fact or they're, they're being influenced by subjective sort of shiny objects that make them to emulate something. So it's um, just got to be really careful because it, we are in an age of being influenced. And I think like too, when, when you have like evidence that is presented uh, that can be both sides of the equation, even something not political, do I, am I, you know, a vegetarian or do I eat like the keto diet? Um, well, you have evidence on both sides that say it's really pretty good. So then it comes to like, well, uh, what feels good to me? Which one? So feeling sometimes I think almost drives what people are deciding to do and being influenced by emotions um, and not getting the right reason because it seems like everywhere out there, there's facts to back up whatever anyone wants to believe. And so um, feelings are important, but sometimes can be very misleading. I don't know. Yes. There's another episode there in there somewhere. All right, Jane, I think I'm getting <laughs> to a point where I need a quote. <laughs> okay, I have a quote. And, Good um, deal, lay it on us. This quote spoke to me because of where we are with the legislative session. We're Day over day, we don't know where we're going. We don't know if our bills are going to get passed or, or you'll get referred to committees or have to be amended. And so this is from Helen Keller. And she said, a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Whoa. One more time. A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. And I just think that that's such a powerful statement about the importance of being resilient of being adaptable, being willing to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. When this is a recurring theme with legislative stuff, you've got to be able to play the long game and not give up when things don't go exactly your way, but figure out a, another way to get, get to where you're going, it, which may take you longer, but it's still um, you're still on the right path towards your, your original goal. The path is windy, so we got to be bending along the way to yes. get to where we want to go. And wow, I just think about going off the rails and hitting that dead end if we don't bend with it. Yeah, be like water. Jane Johnson, thank you so much for bringing this uh, exciting week to us. Look forward to many more. And as thank always- Thank you, Tony. This was awesome as always. Yes, onward and upward. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352 352- 378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.